What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Tuesday, November 20th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The White House Correspondents' Dinner will no longer feature a comedian, but an historian, or depending on your pronunciation, a historian. Although, if the White House Correspondents' Dinner really wanted a night without laughs, they could have just rebooked the 1996 MC Don Imus. Which reminds me of poor old John Warner. The senator marries Elizabeth Taylor, one of the most beautiful women in the world. Three weeks later, he comes home. She's sitting in the kitchen playing deal a meal with Richard Simmons. I mean, how do you get that fat, that fast, and not live in a trailer? Ooh, different time, different time. When the histories are written, we will, I believe, have a hard time grappling with the question, who ever thought Imus was funny? And also why? And when? 20 minutes after the top of the hour, quack, quack. Sorry, that's an old Imus joke. But the new speaker at the White House Correspondents' Dinner will not even attempt comedy or whatever that was, but will reach back to history. They have booked Ron Chernow, author of biographies of Hamilton and Grant. So they've gone bipartisan. You got your Republicans and your Federalists. I think this is a good choice because of the tense. No, I'm not saying because of the tension. I'm saying because of the tense. Historians use what is called the historic or historical or dramatic present. That is the tense they often write in. It's the tense that says things like, Abraham Lincoln knows that Seward will not oppose him on his expansion. Not new, knows, or a, a passage like this. And Roosevelt goes to Taft. These two men, these lions of the party, Taft regards his former mentor and later tormentor warily. And then Roosevelt throws open his arms and says the words Taft would never thought he'd hear. I understand. Wait, what do you mean? He throws his arms open. This happened 110 years ago. What do you mean he says the words? Well, it's the historic present. And guess where else you hear this tense other than the history books? The comedy books, not necessarily stand up or in roasts, but street jokes. You know, guy walks into a bar, walks into a bar, a rabbi, a priest, and a high priestess of Wicca are on a dirigible. Three blind men are rafting in the Nile, and one turns to the other and says, he says, he goes, the historic, dramatic present is also the comedic present. So I therefore suggest that Ron Chernow tell the following jokes in the comedic present. Brett Kavanaugh walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. Bartender says, hey, where'd you get that thing? Parrot says, the Federalist Society assigned him to us. Bartender says, well, I'll need some ID. Parrot says, how old do you think I am? Bartender says, well, I don't know. Parrots live pretty long. I guess you be 40 and Brett Kavanaugh punches him in the face. Listen, it's much better when Ron Chernow tells it. On the show today, I spiel about arm sales and the man, the man being Donald Trump, the guy who thinks we got to keep selling these arms to the Saudis because it's still 1985 and I don't care about murders. But first, I have sat in his chair, I have stood on his stage, and I have made jokes at the expense of his president before a panel of three wise asses. Now, Peter Sagal, the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, returns the favor. Or maybe he pays it forward or deepens the debt. I can't quite figure out who owes who what. But I know this. He has a new book on running out, and he also has some fairly impressive quads. They really pop. Peter Sagal on running, joking, and thinking. Up next.
The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a little too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. The Incomplete Book of Running is written by Peter Sagal. He is the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The cover is an hilarious tribute to Jim Fix's Complete Book of Running, which of course will spark the imagination of everyone who is alive in the 70s and reading running books. What I'm saying, it might be a niche reference, but it works. <laughs> I'm telling you, it really works if you get the original reference. Peter Sagal is not only the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, but he also wrote Dirty Dancing 2 in a terrible roundabout way. Peter, how are you? I'm fine, Mike. How are you? I'm pretty good. So this is cliche, but true, as many cliches are. I was less interested in the book that you wrote of what I learned about running than I was interested in what, in reading about running, I learned about you. Yes. And I knew some of these things about you, but we got to see it refracted through running. So let's talk about a couple of the defining characteristics of Sagal and how running comes into play. Number one, yes. kind of first order effects, your body image. You write about it really honestly, which shouldn't surprise us, but that was the big impetus to run, to, uh, to not be a chubby guy who in real life wasn't even that chubby. Yeah, and that's kind of true. Uh, the technical term for it is uh, body dysmorphia. The uh, I guess the non-technical term for it is just being miserable. Uh, yeah, I grew up and I was a pudgy, non-athletic kid, which will not surprise anybody who found out that I went into a career in public radio. I had not only accepted but internalized a kind of judgment that is made about everybody, most especially young boys, but uh, increasingly young girls too, which is either you're good at sports or you're not. You're a jock or a nerd. You know, when I was a kid, I loved to play baseball, but I was bad at it, and the coaches agreed with me, which is why there was hardly a right field in um, suburban Berkeley Heights, New Jersey in the 70s, which did not have a dandelion that I kicked because I had nothing else to do. So there's not a lot of how-to in my book, but there's a, there's a, a fair bit of why-to, which is, I think that particularly now, People need to get outside, and I mean that literally and metaphorically. Get outside of their rooms, get outside of their heads, get away from the screens and the input, including, dare I say, podcasts and radio shows. It, it really is a wonderful thing, and, and you will come up with things and have thoughts and dreams and ideas that you, do, you cannot have right now. Yeah, I can't believe, I can't believe after how much audio has given to you, you're still on the end. It's almost like Max Boo turning his back on the conservative movement. It's You've exactly broken with like your that. base, the I, people who I, brought you here. Yes, I feel that exactly like that, Mike. I feel that audio has been racist all along, and I don't know why I didn't know <laughs> Now that. you're opening the, your eyes. <laughs> I want to talk about a couple of the things that you already raised. One is the idea of you weren't good at sports, then you are good at this. 
that is true there. I mean, you have the times in your book. You talk about purposefully working with experts to lower your times and you Mm -hmm. had accomplishments on the cross country team. But I think running, and I don't even mean recreational running. I mean, the entire sport of running or runner's world magazine is so much less based on the people who are best at doing it. When I lived in Manhattan on second Avenue, this broad swath of humanity would go past my apartment in the most democratic sporting event in the world. I would say to myself, it's almost as if The U.S. Open were a day when every golfer in the world hit the links, and maybe we paid attention to Tiger Woods, but mostly everyone was just interested in their own score. It's it's different from almost every other sport. It it is. I I actually wrote about it. I became so curious about this. I wrote about it for Runner's World because it's true. I did an event a a few weeks ago with Meb Kaflesky. Meb Kaflesky, which most people probably don't know, is the most accomplished American marathoner of our age. He won the 2009 New York Marathon and the 2014 Boston Marathon. And you know who else ran those races? I did. This guy, he says, pointing to himself. Everybody who signed up for that race is technically racing against the elite athletes in their sport. And yet, as you say, no one cares about them. And that is very strange. Meb Kaflesky can run a series, or he did when he was at his height, he can run four minute and 30 second miles consistently for 26 miles. I can't run one. Contrast that with somebody who plays to switch sports for a second, recreational basketball. Right. They can imagine that they're Michael Jordan or or or, or whomever, um, uh, uh, Steph Curry, doing that same thing. Because in, in the end, it is the same thing. And And the fact that runners don't have that weird delusional aspiration thing going for them, I don't know. It also may have something to do with the fact that there's relatively little money to be made in running. And I mean that both for the participants who do it on an elite level and also for the companies. I mean, the great thing about basketball is you can sell people shoes. You can sell, you know, there's lots of endorsements to be made that people Gatorade and so on and so forth. So there's a commercial interest in getting people really interested in basketball. And that just doesn't exist in um, in running. Yeah, I think it is actually inherent to the sport. And I have often wondered why track and field, or as they call it in Europe, athletics aren't more important because there's such a variety and there are so many relatable things and there's so many great events within a track meet. But I totally understand why distance running isn't that popular because I have always said the most thrilling things in sports are either objects or people hurtling through the air. And then right. why we love football is you get this, uh, this pass through the air and maybe the receiver goes up to get it through the air, and then you add the frisson of danger of him getting crunched at the end. It's just kind of perfect. And the right. two greatest things in basketball are Steph Curry's three-point shot or Michael Jordan's dunk. And for the moment of hanging in the air, everyone catches their breath. And right. what is running except staying on the ground as long as possible? You know, Mike, I overthink things, but I am as nothing as to you. I just want to give you props. Make the case that 26.2 miles is the ideal distance, the crucible for this sport you love. It isn't. Uh, I think, and for most people, half marathons are fine. Uh, And running 13.1 miles is plenty. Marathons are a little different. Marathon is a little bit too far. Because of that, uh, there's an old poetic phrase, the fascination of what's difficult. I think that it is something that, A, everybody can do. Again, if I can do it, you can do it, barring, you know, physical injury or disability. And secondly, I think it's something everybody should do. 
Because another thing, in addition to the lack of silence that we endure, is life is pretty easy. And I know people are going to say, really, it's easy for you. You think it's easy for you because you're a privileged white guy. I said, yes, I know it's true. But for most people, we don't do a lot of, we don't, we're not required to do manual labor. We're not required to hunt our food. We're not required, you know, we don't live in a lot of discomfort. And that's a wonderful thing. I, I do think, though, that to train up and do something that seemed impossible to you is, is a valuable and good experience. And a marathon uh, is an accessible way to do it. There are marathons in this country you can enter, enter for as little as 50 bucks. And uh, then the rest is up to you. What do you think about this idea of, quote unquote, running the marathon in something like more than six hours? I think that's fine. Uh, a story I tell in my book is about a guy who, quote unquote, ran the Boston Marathon the, the same year I did it, first for the first time in 2007. I qualified by running a 320 marathon the year before, as you may know, to get into Boston. It's the only marathon, major marathon like this. You actually have to run a prior marathon at a set pace or a set time in order to qualify. And that's sort of like the amateur runners Olympics. A lot of runners obsess about someday qualifying for Boston. And I did it. And then I went to run Boston and I was very, very proud of myself. And at the same time, this guy named Jacob Sealheimer showed up online and he said, I'm going to run the Boston marathon this year. And he was uh, morbidly obese. He had never run before, but he decided he was going to run the Boston marathon. He wasn't going to be an official entrant. He was just going to run behind the race. And I, at the time, had nothing but contempt for this guy. I mean, like, I trained. This is this thing that those of us who are serious about it take seriously and go out and train for and accomplish, and we will not cheat, and we will get in legitimately, and then it's something that we get to be, I guess, privileged about. And you, you clown, you think you're just going to, like, stumble along the course and then say you ran the Boston Marathon. And I actually was going to like diss this guy in print, but mm -hmm. I talked to him because you got to talk to people before you diss them in print. And at least you're supposed to. And I came to understand that what he did, as slow as he was, was a lot harder than what I did. You know, there weren't cheering crowds for him. There weren't tables of Gatorade and snacks. He just had to do it by himself. You know, everybody has to rise to their own challenges and everybody should be applauded for doing what they can given what they're given and what they're facing. So, yeah, I don't care. You do it in five hours, you're a marathoner. You do it in three hours, you're a marathoner. And the rest is just details. I want to ask you about another major part of the book is about how running fits in with your depression, which... I think I first heard about on the inaugural episode of The Hilarious World of Depression, which yes. is exact, one of the best-named podcasts, most aptly-named podcasts out there. It is. If and you, also, if, when you think about it, it could be the name of many other podcasts. That right. That is, like, the, perhaps that is this the one. subtext of many other podcasts. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Certainly my radio show, your radio show. <laughs> So, slow burn. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely slow burn. Yes, definitely slow burn. My question is... It was my understanding, or it's been told to me, that one way to think of depression, they, the case is made, you know what, it's not the blues, it's not the blahs, it's this noonday demon in the words of a famous book title, it's this crushing thing that prevents you from getting out of bed. So then how does that fit in with the fact that you could go out and run 45 minutes or an hour and 45 minutes and not be cured, but have it help you with this medical, uh, this medical, this malady that is more serious than, you know, just readjusting uh, the, the endocrine flow or the dopamine flow in your body. 
Well, uh, first of all, um, I, I think it is scientifically proven that physical exercise actually provides uh, dopamine. It's a natural antidepressant. I, certainly that's been my experience. Right. And if you're a, a serious chronic depressive, it's not going to cure you. But I think it would help you. Uh, it certainly did so for me. For many, many years, uh, as my uh, marriage deteriorated, which I discuss in the book, so it's not like a weird thing out of nowhere, uh, it was my treatment. And, and I don't think that it is uh, a coincidence that the intensity of my running career, such as it was, coincided with the decline of my marriage. I think that the more things got terrible at home, the more I needed to get outside. And that obviously has another meaning, too, of just simply running away. But it does help significantly if you're outside running. And, like, for example, one of my favorite places to run is in Central Park in New York, the six-mile loop around Central Park. And if you go out there and run without headphones, you will see things. You will see other people. You will see trees. You will see a tavern in the green. You will pass by, um, you know, the place where all the gay men used to hang out and find each other. You will pass by the sheet metal. You will pass by these people and places and sites. You will see the buildings that inspired the building in Ghostbusters. And, and simply changing your inputs into what's in the world as opposed to what's in your head will change what's in your head, and I think in a positive way. All right, one last question about depression, which may not even be about running, but you describe yourself, and we've met, good description, Eeyore-like. <laughs> you have that affect? Yes. <laughs> yes. So do you think that that correlates at all to the idea of depression, or do you have a personality, that Eeyore-like personality, which shows up in a lot of ways and are also depressed? Um, I, I, I think that, you know, as you just said, it manifests in many, many different ways. So, uh, uh, you know what's weird is, is out of all the cases, the one that haunts me most was David Foster Wallace. Mm. I was a huge fan of the author, novelist, essayist. Um, and when I found out that he, when he hung himself, because he was a lifelong depressive who ran afoul of, of, of his medications, is essentially what happened, I was stunned I would read his work and I would see such perception, such understanding of other people and of himself that I just imagined him as somebody who had figured it out. Like I think about his famous essay about being on the cruise ship. It was the first thing of his I read. And this a is a very fam- fun thing. I'll never a supposedly do again. fun thing yeah. I'll never do again. And, and reading that, I was like, man, if I could see life with that precision and that wisdom and to see that in the most mundane thing, like a basket of fruit, I remember he writes about, that there is joy and wonder and amazement and humor in that, why then all my problems would be solved. And uh, the, the most important thing, again, I come back to is don't think that because you are X, you're not really in need of help. Don't think to yourself, as I did for so many years, well, I'm so successful and I can do this and I can manage this and I make a living and I'm not you know, living in squalor, so I'm fine, stop complaining. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with what's going on in your brain and your chemistry and again and again I come back to the same thing. You deserve help. Well, Peter Sagal is a bald-to-balding man from the Northeast with at least one Jewish parent who has hosted Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and has a sports book out in 2018. For some reason, I find him oddly relatable. His book is called The Incomplete Book of Running. Thank you, Peter. 
Mike, thank you. And it's a pleasure to actually talk to you as opposed to being out of town when you're at my desk. <laughs> right. As opposed to me sitting at your desk <laughs> saying, huh, that's a lot of detritus. <laughs> I know. Yes. I, yeah, that's another. I should probably go clean up my desk. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Mike. First taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel. NBC News headline. In an unusual statement disputing the CIA and filled with exclamation points, Trump backs Saudi ruler after Khashoggi killing. The only thing unusual is that NBC thinks any of that is unusual. The president expounded or at least pounded while some sort of uh, contraption whirled away in the background as they seem to do whenever the president talks to the press. Right now, we have oil prices in great shape. I'm not going to destroy the world economy and I'm not going to destroy the economy for our country by being foolish with Saudi Arabia. So, Oil is low. It's actually kind of a drag on the stock market, but overall good for the most of us. With oil this low, though, however, Saudi is much less potent in the world, yet President Trump still obsesses with them as he obsesses with being on the front page of Time magazine, but he obsesses with the Saudis like it was still 1987 pretends or uh, has imagined that the Saudis and the Saudi economy is as important to the U.S. economy as it was back in 1987. Actually, he probably thinks it's much more important, as you will soon find out. So the president justified his countenancing of murder, his turning a blind eye toward oppression, his denigration of a CIA report via one four-letter word. And that word is, of course, jobs. Oh, the jobs the hundreds of thousands of jobs from that huge $110 billion deal President Trump made with the Saudis. Please note, none of the sentence I just said is true. None. First of all, the deal that Trump announced on his first official state visit, the $110 billion deal, the vast majority of it was already on the books before Trump got there. According to William Hartung, the director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy, the actual value of arms sales to Rihad since Trump took office is $14.5 billion. This was confirmed by the U.S. Naval War College professor Jonathan Caverly. Quote, the $110 billion deal is not even remotely solid. The State Department only counts $14.5 billion in implemented sales from the deal. Now, when Mohammed bin Salman visited the White House last year, Trump bragged about all the arms programs that he was dealing with and the attendant jobs they would bring about. And he did so in a way that was probably overly optimistic. But still, because probably his message was scripted, he was using these large displays with photos and reading off of them. But still, he kept it on, I don't know, the normal side of bragging. 1.4 billion dollars. And what it does is it really means uh, many, many jobs. We're talking about over 
40,000 jobs. 40,000 jobs. But then a month ago, when the news of the Saudis murdering Khashoggi surfaced, the number also rose quite a bit. In fact, here he was last month on the Fox Business Channel. We're not going to walk away from Saudi Arabia. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I do not want to do that. And frankly, they have a tremendous order, $110 billion. Every country in the world wanted a piece of that order. We got all of it. And what are we going to do? So, yeah, I mean, I've had some senators come up and some congressmen. They said, well, you know, sir, I think what we should do is we should not take that order. I said, who are we hurting? It's 500,000 jobs. It'll be ultimately $110 billion, the biggest order in the history of our country from an outside military. Whoa, talk about inflation. It went from 40,000 jobs to 500,000 jobs. Then three days later, $450 billion worth of things ordered from a very rich country, Saudi Arabia. Uh, 600,000 jobs, maybe more than that. 600,000 jobs. Now, listen, employers in the U.S., the whole country added 250,000 jobs in October to extend our record streak, by the way, 134,000 jobs jobs in September, 200,000 jobs in August. So we are talking, add those numbers up, that's 600,000 jobs, a little less actually. So from one country, one relatively small country, we're getting as many jobs as the entire country did in three months combined just on the Saudi arms deal. Remember, it's a deal only worth $15 billion. Now you realize, don't you? Yes, I'll do some math. $15 billion, actual price of the deal, divided by 600,000 jobs, that's $25,000 a job. And by the way, when you book a $15 billion deal, it's not like you get to keep all the money. There are costs and profits involved. I have an alternative explanation to this, and that is that Donald Trump is pulling numbers out of the presidential tuchus. An indication of this wanton and galloping lie is right there in that quote I just played. Remember, he talked about the 600,000 jobs, but also $450 billion in goods. I guess he relies on the fact that no one understands or knows or has at their fingertips these big numbers. This is a laughable claim. Let us look at U.S. exports. Our biggest trading partner is the European Union. And the amount of money that we've exported to them last year, $283 billion. Our second biggest trading partner is China. It's mostly imports. But we exported to China $129 billion. Third is Canada. $282 billion was exported to Canada. So the U.S. will be exporting more to Saudi Arabia than China and Canada combined. Saudi Arabia, a country of 30 million people, thousands of miles away with a per capita income of 20,000 versus the country we share, uh, I don't know, three, if you want to include Alaska, four or 5,000 mile border with where they have a per capita income of 45,000 people plus the country with 1.38 billion customers. Combine those two, no, Saudi's going to blow them away. And to give you some more context, last year, Exports, U.S. exports to Saudi Arabia, it wasn't 450 billion. It wasn't even 350 billion. It wasn't 200. I'll stop there. It was 25 billion. And by the way, the president did say things ordered by Saudi Arabia. So he seemed to be implying goods. And that's just $16 billion. Unless the Saudis will be ordering, I don't know, 100 pre made Dallas Cowboy football stadiums. And they might need to just to store this giant pile of horse shit, none of what we've heard is remotely true. And oh, by the way, for these 
however many thousand jobs at, I hope, more than 25,000 each. Let us just note that the United States is no longer in desperate need of jobs. Some economists think that we might even have unemployment that's too low. Here's Brookings' David Wessel. 20 years ago, they anticipated wages would pick up if unemployment fell much below 5%. Today's consensus of what's known as the natural rate of unemployment or NIRU for non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, are around 4.5%, which, of course, is substantially above today's level. Let's put aside the acronyms, let's put aside the stats, and let's talk about what's really going on here. Donald Trump, think about this, Donald Trump is saying we must excuse what the Saudis have done, the killing, for American jobs. Puts forward a ridiculous number, but let's say it's his $14.5 billion in actual spending. And also, let's note that when we say $14.5 billion, that's not for one year. As Defense News reports, the majority of that $14.5 billion, this anti-missile defense system, that is an estimated delivery time of 2023 to 2026. So let's say it leads to, I don't know, 10,000 jobs at a time when the economy is adding hundreds of thousands of jobs a month. And the price of these jobs, which we as a country don't really need, is a dead journalist. Now, you know what? I think many Americans would take that trade, but it's not a dead journalist. The price is more than one dead journalist. It's the entire war in Yemen, which is official policy. Mike Pompeo says should stop, but the president cuts him off at the knees. How many people have been killed in Yemen? I'm not even going to talk about the combatants. I think there's actually some legitimacy to Saudi Arabia not wanting the Houthis to be uh, leading Yemen, although think about the costs. 50 to 80,000 dead, thousands of civilian deaths, and Save the Children says 50,000 children died last year of starvation. Often, by the way, we're asked to, hey, consider your role in some international misdeed. Consider the role you play in the system. Blood diamonds, right? Think about it. You get the diamond, and that's a good thing, but what do you, to get the diamond, the workers are, are either killed or they have such horrible uh, living conditions and their wages are so low. So that that's your complicity. But you have to do a little math. It's a couple steps away. There's a sweatshop. It's run by Disney. Oh, so for me to wear the little mermaid, those poor kids in Indonesia, they, they are beaten daily. And then I have to do the math in my head and say, is it worth it? And this leads to that. Not so with weapon systems. It's not just that some U.S. company is banking the money We are not selling them a water filtration system and then being asked to deal with the moral implications of turning a profit from a barbaric regime. We are literally selling them the means to their barbarism. They have killed people. Every American leader, except our president, says we should do something to punish them for killing people. And the president's argument is no, don't you understand? They might cancel the contract for weapons, weapons which allow them to kill people. It would be as if instead of those Indonesian child laborers giving us the Little Mermaid shirts, that U.S. manufacturers were selling them manacles and desks with built-in leg straps. Or it would be like our amoral, dishonest president was directly contradicting facts, ethics, and good sense, which actually, to make that case, that does not seem to require stats or fact checks or analogies. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader are two of the, let me check this number, okay, 450 billion producers of The Gist. TJ Raphael is the Gist senior producer. She looks at Grover Cleveland 
And she says, why Grover? Why a mugwump? Why? The gist, hereby committing to comparing all of my upcoming guests to beloved Winnie the Pooh characters. Most of them will be Pooh. Oom Peru, Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.